This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. This show is brought to you by the Buddhist Youth Association every Sunday, bringing Buddhism to the community of the Waikato. We also give away a range of free English or Chinese Buddhism books, MP3 or tapes on Buddhism. If you'd like one, please send a letter with $3 worth of stamps in an envelope to P.O. Box 82146, Highland Park, Howick, Auckland. Or you can phone 092713377. Buddhist Youth Association, respectful, beneficial, empowering. Hello and welcome once more to the program. I hope you've had a great week. We've been going through a Tibetan Buddhist text called The Three Principal Aspects of the Path by the founder of the Guluk school, Lama Tsongkhapa. It's a text in the Mahayana stream of Buddhism, and so the three principal aspects are renunciation, bodhicitta, and the right view. Of these, we've completed renunciation and are busy looking at bodhicitta and how to generate it. Just to remind you of where we've gotten the text itself, let me read a few stanzas we've covered so far. They go like this. I bow down to the Venerable Spiritual Masters. I will explain, as well as I am able, the essence of all the teachings of the conqueror, the path praised by the conquerors and their spiritual children, the entrance for the fortunate ones who desire liberation. Listen with clear minds, you fortunate ones, who direct your minds to the path pleasing to the Buddha and strive to make good use of leisure and opportunity without being attached to the joys of cyclic existence. For you embodied beings bound by the craving for existence, without the pure determination to be free from the ocean of existence, there is no way for you to pacify the attractions to its pleasurable effects. Thus, from the outset, seek to generate the determination to be free. By contemplating the leisure and endowments so difficult to find and the fleeting nature of your life, reverse the cling to this life. By repeatedly contemplating the infallible effects of karma and the miseries of cyclic existence, reverse the clinging to future lives. By contemplating in this way, do not generate even for an instant the wish for the pleasures of cyclic existence. When you have, day and night, unceasingly, the mind aspiring for liberation, then you have generated the determination to be free. However, if your determination to be free is not sustained by the pure altruistic intention it does not become the cause for the perfect bliss of unsurpassed enlightenment. Therefore the intelligent generate the, generate the supreme thought of enlightenment. So now, up to and including the second last verse, Lama Tsongkhapa is talking about renunciation. And then in the last verse, he introduces bodhicitta, or what he calls the pure altruistic intention, or the supreme thought of enlightenment. What is bodhicitta? It is the mind that wishes to attain enlightenment for the benefit not only of oneself, but of all living beings. Usually we say all sentient beings, meaning those with mind. But in the Diamond Sutra, the Buddha points out that anybody that makes the distinction between living and non-living beings does not see his teachings. In other words, there is such a strong interaction between the living and the non-living that an ultimate distinction cannot safely be made. Take a piece of cake, for instance. Of course, while it's sitting on the plate waiting for you to eat it, we would normally classify it as a non-living entity. However, once you begin to eat it, 
When does it become so much a part of you, a living being, that it can no longer be distinguished as not living? Because of this, we have to keep in mind that the difference between living and non-living is not as rigid as we might make it out to be. Also, the mind only, or Chittamatra school, says that everything is mind. Nothing exists outside of mind. If that is so, then a stone is a construct of a living mind, and the distinction between what is living and what is not becomes a matter of mere convention and language. As I said last time, the Tibetans follow two ways of doing this, the six-cause-and-one-effect method, which we have been following, and the equalizing-and-exchanging-self-for-others method that Shantideva follows in his guide to the Bodhisattva's way of life. In the six-cause-and-one-effect method, the six causes are seeing all beings as one's mother, remembering their kindness to oneself, wishing to repay the kindness, great love, great compassion, and the great resolve. The one effect is bodhicitta. Last week, we talked about great love and the benefits of love, so this week, we move on to great compassion. However, before we go any further, let's consider our motivation as we usually do. Any motivation for merely this life's happiness is not considered worthwhile in Buddhism, for when this life is over, so is the benefit from actions done with that motivation. Motivation to benefit future lives is better, but is still limited. As come the end of those lives, the benefit ends also. We should at least motivate to attain liberation, the state of an arhat, which is completely free from all suffering. But even better than that is the bodhicitta motivation, which focuses on the benefit, temporary and ultimate, of all living beings. So let's try for such a motivation if we can, if not at least for liberation. Thank you. And now let's continue with the six cause and one effect. Once we've developed great love, great compassion grows out of it. Great love is distinguished from what we normally think of as love by its object. In ordinary terms, our love is confined to a few other beings, maybe ourselves, maybe our mother, father and other relatives, our friends and even our pets. For other beings, we may have a slightly positive or neutral attitude or we may dislike them in one way or another. When trying to develop bodhicitta, this attitude of partiality is unacceptable and we have to extend our love to all beings. That is why we meditate on considering them as all our mothers. Thus the object of great love is all beings, not just the ones that are kind or pleasant to us. It doesn't matter whether beings are nasty or nice, great love sees them all with warm-heartedness and only wishes for their well-being and happiness. Similarly, great compassion is not only concerned with the suffering of those who are close to us, but with all beings everywhere. Tipton Chodron, in her commentary on the three principal aspects of the path, says, You can see that when you have a heartwarming love that really cares about beings and sees them as lovable, then wishing them to be free from suffering becomes a possibility. Here again, this compassion is generated towards all living beings, not just towards some of them. We can meditate on compassion beginning with ourselves and then extending it to our friends, to strangers and to people we don't like. We can start thinking about the suffering we have, the misery we have. Don't think in just a small way. May I be free of cancer, may I be free of AIDS. You might say, well, what's small about that? I think it's quite big. 
I want to be free of cancer and I want to be free of AIDS. But wish ourselves, may I be free of all the suffering of cyclic existence whatsoever. May I attain full liberation and full enlightenment. Don't be stingy with your compassion towards yourself. What we often call renunciation or the determination to be free is basically compassion for ourselves, wishing ourselves to be free of cyclic existence and all the sufferings in it. So let's wish that for ourselves and then let's wish it towards other beings. When we are meditating on compassion, extend it like that. It also helps to remember that other beings at this time have much greater suffering than what we are experiencing. I don't know if you think about this on a daily basis. I try and train my mind to do that, and I'm often very aware. When I get out of bed in the morning, the first thing I do is make three prostrations. I feel very aware of the fact that I can move my body to do prostrations. I'm not always going to have good enough health to do prostrations, but today I'm well enough. My body functions well enough so that I can offer my respect to the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. And just really feeling what great joy and how incredibly fortunate I am to have a body that functions well enough to do that. When we sit down to eat our breakfast, think how incredibly fortunate we are to have breakfast. And again, think of the people who are ill and the people who are hungry. And think about what that really means in their lives. That's Tupton Children. Now, very often our own suffering can help us to develop a wide-ranging compassion for others. Tipton children might dismiss thinking, may I be free of cancer and AIDS and so on, as small. But our experience of them and the wish to be free can lead to a tremendous opening of our hearts. Sitting on the meditation cushion and making extensive wishes is not the only way to generate great love and compassion. For some of us, it may not even be the best way. I recently came across a story about AIDS that demonstra- demonstrates this. It's the life story of Zen monk Seppo Ed Fari, and it goes like this. I spent my late teens and half of my twenties as a gay man indulging in my newfound independence, searching in all the wrong places for what I now know to be a philosophical truth, and hell-bent in the pursuit of parties and sexual gratification. Having grown up in a small American village, I had not known any other gay men as a child, and so I had no role models. Alcohol seemed to help me accept my sexuality and to give me courage in wild times. It also isolated me from my family and friends, ruined my self-esteem, and wreaked havoc with my job security. Luckily I found a twelve-step program in my mid-twenties and sobered up. Soon I started a serious relationship, came out to my family, got a job managing a restaurant and returned to college to finish my degree. I even started running competitively. I was still young and life looked promising. What more could I ask for? Then, in the late 80s and early 90s, AIDS started to rock our world. It was everywhere I turned. First a few acquaintances, then a few friends, then many friends. Then my significant other was diagnosed. Although AIDS was dominant in my life, I seemed able to contend with its ugly presence. That was until my own HIV diagnosis brought me to my knees. Walking into the doctor's office, I thought I was prepared for anything. I had three years of sobriety and twelve-step programming under my belt. I couldn't have been more wrong. When I was told that I was positive, I stared at the wall in disbelief, tears streaming down my face. 
All I could think was, I'm going to die, I'm going to die. When my friend Barbara hugged me, I sobbed deep, inaudible cries, and my body heaved under her arms. I had no idea where to turn or how to tell my family. For several days, my mind was paralyzed, trying to sort and prioritize a meaningless life. After living in a state of numbness for two months, I was fortunate to discover a wonderful support organization that existed at the time for people with life-challenging illnesses. It was called the Manhattan Center for Living and was founded by Marianne Williamson. I registered as a client and was struck by the fact that many of the clients were also volunteer staff members. After only two months, I was so inspired by helping others that I made a conscious decision to devote my life to doing service. In less than three months, I was asked to join the small paid staff. This gave me a tremendous opportunity to do everything from client counseling to managing the crisis center on weekends. Watching people persevere against seemingly insurmountable odds with such positive and courageous attitudes provided me with a powerful example for my own life. But death still surrounded us. The first few struck me deeply to the core. To watch such beautiful lights, dimmed in such an awful manner, ripped my very being apart. Not knowing if I would literally see someone again, I began to treat everyone differently, more kindly and lovingly. I started to feel my heart open more and more. Yet, as the death toll constantly increased, continuing to remain open and vulnerable became more and more difficult. After months and months of tragedies, deaths of friends no longer felt like a personal issue. Grieving had been reduced to moving their file from the active file cabinet to the deceased file cabinet and posting a notice of their passing on the community bulletin board. During my last two months at the centre, I lost one of my best friends and, unbelievably, about 20 other friends. I was completely paralysed emotionally and didn't know what I was experiencing. Emotionally burnt out, I left the centre and happened upon an ad for an HIV retreat at a Zen monastery. I realised I needed to spend time on my own healing. I joined the retreat and eventually decided to remain there in residence, first as a lay student, then as an ordained monk. Over the next several years, I found myself shedding many tears, especially in meditation. One day, I was asked to organize the very same retreat for people with HIV and AIDS that had drawn me there in the first place. Strengthened now by my meditation practice, I found myself joyously hosting the weekend, gathering many different body workers and healers and cooking nourishing vegetarian food for the retreatants. It was a demanding schedule that afforded only four hours of sleep at night, but it was one that I completely gave myself to. Recently an old friend found his way to the retreat as a body worker. Over the years since I had known him as a client at the Manhattan Center for Living, he had been developing his own healing skills and was just now beginning to give back to the AIDS community. When I asked him what his motivation had been, I was stunned. He told me that for many years he had watched me helping others and had been moved so much by my ceaseless giving that he decided to devote his life in the same way, with generosity, enthusiasm and commitment. He even wanted to help me coordinate the next year's retreat. I was speechless, tears in my eyes, a lump in my throat. To my mind I had done nothing out of the ordinary. 
All those years I'd only followed my aching heart. I myself had been inspired by others, but I never imagined that my conscious devotion to service would ever inspire another person so deeply as to give himself so totally in the same way. I was and am forever grateful. Now, as I understand it, Seppo Ed Fari is now the chef for Tenzo at the forest monastery Dai Bosatsu Zendo in the Catskill Mountains, and he expresses his great love for people through his cooking. He writes in the introduction to his cookbook, Three Bowls, The Tenzo routine, like the routine of daily meditation, has gradually become a spiritual practice, providing me with a valuable opportunity to serve and nurture others. The right qualities of heart and mind in cooking are just as important as a stove or a knife. You can find his story, the one that I've just read, in The Power of Compassion by Pamela Bloom and John Halifax Roshi. Of course, a universal kind of compassion is not only vital to develop bodhicitta, but it's very necessary if we just want to live as a kind and merciful human being. His Holiness the Dalai Lama calls love, compassion and tolerance the basis of all religions. He says they cannot be regarded as luxuries in life, but are in fact necessities. Without them, he doubts whether humanity can survive. Here's what he says in the book Handbook of the Spirit, edited by Richard Carlson and Benjamin Shield. The essence of all religions is love, compassion and tolerance. Kindness is my true religion. No matter whether you are learned or not, whether you believe in the next life or not, whether you believe in God or Buddha or some other religion or not, in day-to-day life you must be a kind person. When you are motivated by kindness, it doesn't matter whether you are a practitioner, a lawyer, a politician, an administrator, a worker or an engineer. Whatever your profession or field, deep down you are a kind person. Love, compassion and tolerance are necessities, not luxuries. Without them, humanity cannot survive. If you have a particular faith or religion, that's good. But you can survive without it if you have love, compassion and tolerance. The clear proof of a person's love of God is if that person genuinely shows love to fellow human beings. To have strong consideration for others' happiness and welfare, we must have a special altruistic attitude in which we take upon ourselves the burden of helping others. To generate such an unusual attitude, we must have great compassion, caring about the suffering of others and wanting to do something about it. To have such a strong force of compassion, we must have a strong sense of love that upon observing sentient beings wishes that they have happiness. Finding a pleasantness in everyone and wishing happiness for everyone, just as a mother does for her soul's sweet child. To have a sense of closeness and dearness for others uses a model, a person in this lifetime who is very kind to you. Then extend the sense of gratitude to all beings. Deep down, we must have real affection for each other, a clear realization or recognition of our shared human status. At the same time, we must openly accept all ideologies and systems as a means of solving humanity's problems. One country, one nation, one ideology, one system is not sufficient. It is helpful to have a variety of different approaches on the basis of a deep feeling of the basic sameness of humanity. We can then make a joint effort to solve the problems of the whole of humankind. Every major religion has similar ideas of love 
The same goal of benefiting through spiritual practice and the same effect of making its followers into better human beings. All religions teach moral precepts for perfecting the functions of mind, body and speech. All teach us not to lie or steal or to take others' lives and so on. The common goal of all moral precepts laid down by the great teachers of humanity is unselfishness. Those teachers wanted to lead their followers away from the paths of negative deeds caused by ignorance and to introduce them to paths of goodness. All religions can learn from one another. Their ultimate goal is to produce better human beings who will be more tolerant, more compassionate and less selfish. Human beings need spiritual as well as material sustenance. Without spiritual sustenance, it is difficult to get and maintain peace of mind. The purpose of religion is not to argue which one is the best. Over the past centuries, each great teaching has served humanity, so it's much better to make friends, understand each other, and make an effort to serve humanity than to criticize or argue. Buddha, Jesus Christ, and all the other great teachers created their ideas and teachings with sincere motivation, love and kindness towards humanity, and they shared it for the benefit of humanity. I do not think those great teachers created differences to make trouble. Our human mind always likes different approaches. There's a richness in the fact that there are so many different presentations of the way. There are two ways to enter into Buddhism, one through faith and one through reasoning. Faith alone may not be sufficient. Buddha always emphasized a balance of wisdom and compassion. A good brain and a good heart should work together. Placing importance on just the intellect and ignoring the heart can create more problems and more suffering in the world. On the other hand, if we emphasize only the heart and ignore the brain, then there's not much difference between humans and animals. These two must be developed in balance, and when there are, the result is material progress accompanied by good spiritual development. Heart and mind working in harmony will yield a truly peaceful and friendly human family. I feel that my mission is, wherever I am, to express my feeling about the importance of kindness, compassion, and the true sense of brotherhood. I practice these things. It gives me more happiness, more success. If I practice anger or jealousy or bitterness, no doubt my smile would disappear. The real troublemakers are anger, jealousy, impatience, and hatred. With them, the problems cannot be solved. Though we may have temporary success, Ultimately, our hatred or anger will create further difficulties. Anger makes for swift solutions, yet when we face problems with compassion, sincerity and good motivation, our solutions may take longer, but ultimately they are better. When I meet new people, in my mind there is no barrier, no curtain. As human beings, you are my brothers and sisters. There is no difference in substance. I can talk with you as I would to old friends. With this feeling, we can communicate without any difficulty and can make heart-to-heart -heart contact. Based on such genuine human relations, real feeling for each other, understanding each other, we can develop mutual trust and respect. From that, we can share other people's suffering and build harmony in human society. That's His Holiness, the Dalai Lama. Now, in developing bodhicitta, we do need to think beyond human society, though, and include all the beings in the universe. According to the Buddhist cosmology, many kinds of beings exist. 
some of which we can't experience through our senses. In broad terms, the cosmology talks of six realms, hells, hungry ghosts, animals, humans, azuras and gods. And when considering bodhicitta, we have to develop love and compassion for all the beings in these realms. We only know the animals and humans, although some people can see other beings around us. I've told you before about a monk who meditated in forests all around the world. But when he came to Temoata, where I did my retreat, he said he saw more devas than anywhere else. When I was on retreat, I didn't see any, though they were probably all around gawking at me. Tipton Chaudron makes the point that some people think that the six realms is just an illustration of the six broad psychological states of a human being. They are metaphorical, so as to speak. But that doesn't matter in her opinion. She says, To talk about hungry ghosts and gods and hell realms and demigods, it's like, how do I know these beings exist? Are they a metaphor, or are they real beings like us? Well, for me, that's not an issue. Who cares if it's a metaphor for human suffering, or if they are real beings like this? Still, it describes suffering, doesn't it? doesn't matter if it's a metaphor or real, it still describes the kind of suffering living beings experience. So, think of beings in the hungry ghost realm, for instance, who are tormented by their own greed, by their own dissatisfaction, and by their frustration in not getting what they want. Now, the way they're described is that they're starving, so they run here and there, they run looking for food. And when they try to get food, it turns to pus and blood. Or even if it doesn't, when it gets to their mouths, it turns on fire. And if that doesn't happen, their neck is so thin that it can't get down. And you go, huh, how am I supposed to believe in beings that look like that? Doesn't matter. Don't get so hung up on the specifics. Some people are hungry ghosts in terms of feeling loved. They have such incredible feelings of being unlovable that they go from one person to another person seeking love. As soon as they have a relationship, they wind up doing something where the relationship has trouble and they break up. You know people like this. Maybe you're one of them. People constantly looking for love, but things never work out. Always problems, always frustrations, always bad relationships. People cheat on them, or they're in love with somebody who is a substance abuser, or they're always together with people who are ill and die. Think of that mental state of human beings who live like hungry ghosts. I can imagine in Afghanistan and Iraq, many places. It's the hungry ghost mind, isn't it, looking for something. It's the mind of an alcoholic. The hungry ghost realm is the alcoholic's mind because you're always looking for something. Where's my satisfaction? Where's my happiness? Go here, go there, do this, do that, try and get it. In the meantime, you dig yourself into a deeper and deeper hole. That's a hungry ghost mind, isn't it? And so any substance abuse... Somebody who's a shop-until-you-drop person, that's a hungry ghost mind. So think about that mental state. Think about it, how it appears in human life. But think about if that mental state is so strong in a human body, it's very possible that if you die and change bodies, that you get a hungry ghost body. Think about it a little bit. If that way of looking at life is so strong, that a hungry ghost mind is so strong when you're a human being, so habituated with dissatisfaction and greed and running here and there and craving happiness and frustration and discontent because you've never found a way to be content with yourself. If that mind is so strong at the time of death, you leave the shell of a body, you jump into another body. What kind of body are you going to get? 
It's a hungry ghost realm, isn't it? If you think like that, that there are other realms that we can't see, it begins to seem a little bit more feasible. And now you can think about that in the week to come for our time together is up. Please dedicate any positive potential we've accumulated to the enlightenment of all beings and thanks for joining me today. I hope you'll do so again next week. Goodbye. Thanks for listening to this Free FM podcast. If you want to hear more content like this, you can support Free FM via Patreon. Head to patreon.com slash freefm89 to find out more.